From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal agencies report 8% fewer cyber incidents in fiscal 2019 than the year before, according to new data from the Office of Management and Budget. The new annual Federal Information Security Management Act report to Congress says the drop is thanks to improved risk management. 72 agencies meet the managing risks rating. That's almost double the number from 2017. The Government Accountability Office will run an after-action report on the executive branch's telework response to the coronavirus. GAO's Nick Marino says his office will start its work, quote, in the next couple of weeks. FCW reports Marino says his agency may not have results for 9 to 18 months. The National Science Foundation would get a new name and a new shot of budget cash under a bill Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is sponsoring. The new name would be the National Science and Technology Foundation. NextGov reports the agency would get $100 billion over five years to work on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and 5G, among other technologies. Federal employees and retirees will have new withdrawal options soon from the thrift savings plan that the CARES Act authorizes. Participants will be able to take out bigger loans and stop payments on them for up to 12 months. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, are you having to do anything differently inside the guts of the TSP to accommodate what the CARES Act is going to allow your participants to do? Yes, we are. That's what's delaying the implementation of them. We have to reprogram our systems to allow the um, processing of the greater amounts of the loans. So just to recap, the CARES Act allows people to take out um, $100,000 as a loan and repay it or make a withdrawal of $100,000 and repay it. Um, we're on track to implement the loan provision by mid-June and the withdrawal provision by hopefully the end of June. And we know that our participants are quite anxious for this. We're doing it as quickly as we can. But again, when you're programming a system, you need to test it and make sure that things don't go haywire. So you just have a couple of weeks away before those flexibilities are available to people. Those are, are those the same flexibilities that other folks have in their uh, 401k plans, uh, you know, private citizens have? Same thing applies to TSP accounts, Kim? Yeah, the CARES Act applied to the TSP and all 401ks, but it was permissive. So there may be some 401ks out there who aren't choosing to implement them. It, it's plan by plan. Some new numbers this month, Kim, that I found pretty encouraging, actually, given the economic numbers and employment numbers that we see across the country. I note that uh, the TSP board learned at the most recent board meeting um, the decrease in hardship withdrawals from the thrift savings plan and an increase in participation among FERS employees and active duty military. What do you think is driving that or, or what are your participants telling you are the reasons that they're participating in greater numbers and they don't need to take the, the hardship withdrawals? Well, the, the increase in the participation rates for uniform services and for FERS is the result of auto enrollment. It is, you know, that uh, uh, passive nudge that keeps people in. And in fact, 
uniform services is up to 71% participation rate, which is a 22% um, percentage point increase since January of 2018. And that's driven solely by the auto enrollment under blended retirement. As to why we've had about a third, 33% drop in hardship withdrawals and in loans over the past sort of month and a half. We're not entirely sure why that is. Um, the economics of the current situation for federal employees may be slightly different than it is for the rest of the population Mo in America. Most feds are still employed. Uh, and that could have something to do with it. To be, But to be quite honest, we really aren't sure. On the participation rates, Kim, do you have a sense either timeline-wise or percentage participation percentage-wise what the peak might be, when you might eventually catch up, for example, with the active-duty military folks? Okay, as many people as are probably going to enroll are going to enroll, or is there no way to predict that? I think we expect that we would hit around, first participation rate is about 93%, if I remember right. And I think we're expecting around a 96% participation rate, not easy to say. Um, and it probably will level out about there, mostly because we see about a 4% opt-out rate. And so I'm you know, in general, 96, 97% participation is probably where you top out. But it, it again, I don't know that we would stake our reputation on that. Yeah. Uh, same number with active duty military, about 96% uh, participation rate? Yeah, their opt-out rates have been about the same. And any sense of a timeline of when you might get to that? Or is it just kind of an evolutionary process that you continue to track? It's slow but steady. I don't have a timeline as to when we would expect to hit that. What else did the board learn about at the most recent board meeting, Kim? Well, what we were talking about was uh, the fact that interfund transfers has, has declined. In March, there was a lot of money moving out of the stock funds into the G fund. That has largely reversed, in fact, in... Um, April, about $5 billion left the G fund, went back into equities. What we had seen, which was a surprise to us, was people were taking money out of their L funds and moving into the G fund. That we didn't expect, but that trend has reversed and people have um, put their money back into the L funds. Kind of defeats the purpose of the L fund, but that's an editorial comment on my part and not the position of the thrift savings plan. Um, Kim, uh, about 30 seconds left. What else uh, should we know about what's going on at the TSP? Anything else that we should follow? The five-year L funds will be coming at the end of June, and I think that will be a big thing for a lot of people to be able to more specifically target their L fund investments to their particular age range. Kim Weaver, thanks very much as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, using emerging technology in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to introduce new tech the right way. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Department of Veterans Affairs uses artificial intelligence to speed up its claims process, and agencies are finding more use cases for cutting-edge technologies like AI and putting those use cases into practice. 
Katie Maleg is Vice President of Government Effectiveness at the Partnership for Public Service. Katie, thanks for coming on, as always. Is the use case maybe the most important factor for agencies to have success in using artificial intelligence, that they have a strategy and a plan rather than just applying technology for technology's sake? Well, Francis, good to see you. Thanks for having me on. It is one of the key things that agencies should look at. There are a few best practices we saw as we looked at the landscape of new and emerging technologies across the federal government. And particularly, I'd like to highlight three. There are a number of best practices in the report. But first is really knowing that the technology is right for the problem you're trying to solve. These technologies are pretty enticing. We might see one at work and we want to try to find a way we can use it in an agency. But in fact, the agencies that are most successful here are the ones that actually look at the problem, have a clear problem statement, and then build the business case for using it. And then another, of course, is looking at the best practices that other agencies have done. And another one might be actually using the flexibilities that they have. When we talk about emerging technologies and technology generally in government, we often talk about the challenges, and they're numerous, whether it's budgeting or procurement or outdated systems and processes. But there are flexibilities available for agencies, particularly around procurement and hiring, and we encourage them to look to other agencies that have done this well. It strikes me that what is encouraging is that you and your colleagues, Booz Allen, that did this report, what you found is not an issue with artificial intelligence itself. You know, these three things that you just outlined are all things that the government has dealt with before and challenges that they're aware of from, from trying other new technologies or trying other policy and procedure changes. Am I on the right track, Katie? You are. I mean, as we're seeing employees across the country working remotely, we're increasingly relying on technology to stay connected. And these are long-time challenges for federal agencies. But we've seen a number of federal agencies that have used new and emerging technologies to enhance both internal operations and their customer service. And we can draw on those examples to, to help other agencies assess if these tools might be right for them. You mentioned in this report um, a case in San Diego where they're using artificial intelligence for uh, traffic management. Are there cases that you saw that local state governments are using where the federal government might be missing the boat, not specifically traffic mitigation, but where the concepts might apply to problems that the federal government has that they just haven't gotten there yet? It's an interesting question. I think what we've seen it, when we profile a case for the Federal Emergency Management Agency of how they're using virtual reality to help local governments. So we're trying to profile some of these cases where uh, even the federal government working with localities can be beneficial. In that instance, they have a tool that allows local government officials to immerse themselves in a virtual flooded environment and assess what kinds of decisions they might make. And the tool allows them to try different steps to see what the different outcomes or consequences might be. And that can really help with flood mitigation plans at the local level. So I wanna go back to the first of your three best practices, Katie, and I wonder if there are best practices for the best practice. And that is that deciding what technology is right for the problem that you have, the problem statement first, and then the application. What do you do to make sure you don't put the cart before the horse? Because you're right, a lot of these technologies look hot and it's easy for an agency to say we should apply some of that to something 
and I wonder what you've seen agencies do to make sure that they have strategy first and then execution. Well, I'd say a good starting point is the center of government has pulled together some resources that can give agencies a running start. So the Office of Management and Budget, the CIO Council, the General Services Administration, they've assembled resources so that agencies don't have to start from scratch. And that will allow one agency to learn from another. And that really, to me, can be some of the most promising ways to get started. So using those cross-agency connections to try to draw on um, expertise and lessons learned, and perhaps starting small, that you can deploy technologies in a small-scale way and then uh, expand them if they are successful and as needed. Folks have joked about the silos, the cylinders of excellence that agencies have built up over the years. We've been laughing about that for decades. Are we getting better at that? that that's best practice number two is that facilitation of information exchange. And I wonder if that's improving in your view, Katie. You know, I think we've talked about this before, Francis. I am a big believer in using the cross-agency connections to try to get work done. When I was at the Office of Management and Budget and the Treasury Department myself, I really found that the best opportunities I had for learning were with my peers who were doing similar work in other agencies. And we would draw on their expertise and deploy it in our own agency and vice versa. And so I, I do think there are opportunities here. I think the CIO Council right now is very strong in terms of coordinating across agencies and giving opportunities to those agencies. I think also opportunities with the management councils to go across functions. So connecting the chief human capital officers with the chief information officers. I think those could be fruitful territory for new learnings across agencies. Katie Millegg of the Partnership Public Service, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you as always. Thanks, Francis. Great to see you. Up next, partnering with the uh, public and private sectors for economic growth. Straight ahead on Government Matters, implementing partnerships at the State Department. From the ground up, don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The State Department works with public and private partners around the world to develop programs for diplomacy and economic development. The Office of Global Partnerships has worked with more than 1,600 partners on these projects. Thomas DeBoss is Managing Director at the Office of Global Partnerships at the State Department and a finalist for a Service to America Medal. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Congratulations on your selection as a SAMI's finalist, Thomas. What kind of partnerships does your team work on? Thank you, Francis, for having me. And, uh, yeah, this is a huge honor uh, for myself and for, for my team at the Department of State. And uh, yeah, our office essentially engages with the private sector quite actively to, to advance our foreign policy. Uh, we, 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 work, we start with the premise that the, the, the U.S. government alone cannot solve these uh, grand challenges that we face around the world. So we need to include our broader private sector uh, with the depth of knowledge and resources that the private sector have, it can help us advance our policy. So that's those are the type of engagements that we do, and we don't we don't focus on just single issues. Uh, any foreign policy problems that we face around the world, through our embassies, uh, we engage our respective private sectors to ensure that uh, we bring uh, and kind of on, on all all hands on deck approach to to solve these problems. 
How do you sort through what I imagine are a very long list of projects that come to you as uh, something that potentially your office could work on? Yeah, I mean, in most cases that we, we actually uh, uh, bring these problems that we face and we, we try to test that with the private sector because if we cannot find uh, a, a demand side from the private sector that, that, that actually believes that they can share those issues with us in our foreign policy problems, could be their business model problems or their mission problems. So once those synergies kind of collide together, intersect those things, then we do have at that point partnership. So we don't just kind of willy-nilly say we will, you know, we will take those challenges uh, at the forefront. We actually let the, the kind of market determine whether there is actually, a, you know, uh, a demand on that side or a supply, if you call it, on that side to, to solve these problems. What makes for a good private sector partner, Thomas? What, how do you analyze uh, someone that you, uh, an organization you haven't worked with before as potentially somebody who's going to be a good fit to solve the problem that you have in front of you at a, any given time? Great, great question. First is track record. Obviously, we want to make sure the, uh, the organization that we work with um, has high standard of uh, integrity and, and reputation to ensure that we don't put, uh, we, we don't want to take reputational risk or any type of risk in, in partnering with others. And the other one is shared value. We want to make sure that the, the organizations that we work with share the kind of vision and values that we have uh, in, in working in these type of markets. So those are the two key, key things, as track record uh, and uh, the type of depth that organization might have on their respective industries and, and, and areas that they work with. Uh, and the other essentially is their ability to kind of deliver to work with us in, in, in solving these problems. The biography, the, the background on your work that the partnership has on its website about each of the SAMI's finalists lists a tremendous number of accomplishments in your career. But the one that jumped out at me is this one. Uh, John Heffern said, we had very restrictive policies referring to the work that the State Department did with for-profit companies. Thomas worked with our legal team to change the rules so we can now do formal partnerships and exchanges with for-profit companies. What did you have to do? What buttons did you have to push what rocks did you have to move, Thomas, to make that happen? That strikes me as maybe the most difficult of all of the things that you've accomplished. Ambassador Herford was too kind in his words. It's not necessarily I myself did that, but a kind of our, the broader effort by the department, once we believe that the private sector engagement is the way of the future in advancing our foreign policy, we work very closely with our uh, legal folks to ensure that working with the private sector does not necessarily have to come with an automatic ethics issue, an automatic risk issue. So we work with them in, in creating a vetting uh, protocol. So we, my unit to the, organ, uh, the office that I work with, we have a small vetting unit that ensures that every organization that we work with, uh, we vet them for multi, you know, multi-factor issues. Well, whether they have, uh, they have litigation issues, they have taken, uh, they have any type of, uh, uh, you know, ethical issues or, or, or the entire gamuts of what risk means. And, and so we've essentially created uh, a, a, a kind of a, a mechanism to ensure that our lawyers can feel comfortable when we work with organizations that these are top-notch organizations and we're not putting the department at risk. Uh, so that's one issue in terms of uh, vetting. The reason that I think that's so significant is because basically you converted a federal government agency's viewpoint about that from we can't do that, we're not allowed to, to we want to do that as much as we possibly can. That's what I think the significance is there. What do you think the cultural factors were that you learned about through that process that somebody else might be able to apply who wants to make the same kind of turn? That's a, that's a great question. It's essentially there's a default to 
sometimes to know, right? You don't want to take any risk. Uh, you want you don't want to put uh, U.S. government resources or reputation at risk. And and in doing so, if we become too conservative in that approach, that we're now leaving a lot of organizations who can actually help us uh, go deeper and reach uh, an even much larger scale of population. So it, the 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 the, the key thing in, from a cultural shift perspective is to actually look at the private sector. And when I say private sector, it's broadly defined, not just companies, but also or, you know, foundations, faith-based groups, uh, you know, academia, the entire gamut of American society. Then when you look at it from that viewpoint, then when we see these type of organizations as a resource to advance our policies, then it becomes a lot more, um, people get a lot more appetite to actually see how we can do that. And so by essentially ensuring that none of, we're not taking any compromises on, on our policies, on our ethics, on our, our laws and any regulations that we have, we're not asking for any type of you know, exemptions on those basis. But within those framework, we can actually work with, these, with any type of organizations as long as they meet certain criteria, uh, which is integrity and, and shared value and, and resources that they can bring to the table. So when you do that, the need itself brings about appetite from people to say, you know what, you're actually helping the department go further. Therefore, how do I then work with you to essentially do, you know, do these type of uh, you know, transactions? Thomas, congratulations on your selection as a finalist. I know it means a lot to you and your team, and I thank you for coming on and talking about your work today. Thank you, Francis. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.